0: Welcome to Light for the Journey, a podcast of Russell Memorial, United Methodist Church. Each week, we open the scriptures in faith that the timeless truth of God will guide us as we seek to follow in the steps of Jesus. This week's message is one of purpose and a time of uncertainty. In the days after Jesus died, a time when his disciples were scared of what the future held and mostly stayed indoors in fear of dangers of the outside world, Jesus appeared to two of his own disciples who did not recognize him. He had to realign their understanding of himself and God's word before they realized who it was they spoke to. Today, Pastor David Cartwright suggests that we take this time of quarantine to likewise realign our vision with God's plan and purpose. As we go to our message today, let's open up our hearts and minds to the truth that God would speak to us.
1: As we come to the word this morning I'll invite you to open your scriptures to Luke chapter 24 we will continue reading there this morning the 24th chapter of the gospel according to Luke we'll be reading verses 13 through 27 And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were conversing with each other about all these things which had taken place. And it came about that while they were going and conversing and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad. And one of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene who was a prophet mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us, When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Oh God, as we center our hearts around the truth of your word, we ask that your Holy Spirit would help us, abide with us, and help us so that our hearts, our ears, our minds are open to you. May your voice be the voice that is heard, your truth be that which we receive this morning. May everything not according to your truth be quickly forgotten. And may Christ and Christ alone be lifted up and given glory this day. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. We come to this text that is um, quite familiar to those who have journeyed through the Gospels previously. It, it is a, it, it's an Easter text. We, we should remember that as we began reading, this is still a narration of Easter Sunday, uh, and so we just continue from the events that happened early that morning at the tomb, the disciples finding out, and now later that day, these two disciples, uh, one of whom is unnamed, uh, are, they, they are traveling along to this town called Emmaus, about seven miles or so out of Jerusalem. And while they're traveling, Jesus comes and he joins them. There's so much about this text that is is very rich. I would love to just comment on every little verse, but you don't want me to take that kind of time today. Usually it's a narrative that we read in its completion. We stopped about halfway through it, but we're just going to take about half of it and then save the other half for next week's message. There's something that I want for us to dwell upon today, which has to do with the nature of, of God's working in and through his people that is represented in how he worked in the person of Jesus Christ, namely his death and his resurrection. And so as we, we come to it this day, we recognize that we hold something in common with these two disciples, and that is a a concept of hope. We are all hoping for the kingdom of God. We are hoping for the reign of God. We are hoping for God to have his way to, to redeem his people, to set up his kingdom. The language we would use may differ a little bit from the language they would have used, but at its core, the hope is the same. And, and we can resonate with when these, these disciples said we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And part of the irony of this text is they were talking to the one who was the one and is the one who redeemed Israel. But they just didn't realize it. And what we find out is that they had a, they had a concept of how God would bring about the completion of his vision for his kingdom and how we would translate as a, that being a, a vision for our ministry. But it was a vision that lacked one very important provision, and that is the provision for persecution and hardship. And what we have to see in this is that God is a God who weaves persecution and hardship into the completion of his vision. And that's what the disciples didn't understand. When Jesus finally responds to them and and says, was it not necessary for the Son of Man to suffer these things? He's, he's saying, look, God had a plan, and that was part of the plan, and you just fail to see that. And he goes on and, and, and he opens the Scriptures to them and reveals how the, how the Word of God had already disclosed that these would be things that, that happened. And so there's this great tension built into it. And we can even feel that tension of saying, how, how could we have known? I mean, seriously, the, you know, the Son of Man who would be crucified and then on the third day be raised, that, that, that's quite an incredible concept. It stretches our imagination. How could we have known? And yet at the same time, Jesus says to these disciples, You should have known, because God has already disclosed how his plan was going to work. And the persecution and the suffering of the Son of Man, even though you didn't understand it, was all part of the plan. In the center of this narrative, there are a couple of verses here where these disciples respond to Jesus when when he's saying, well, tell me about these things that have happened, not knowing that they're talking to the very one to whom these things happened. And as they walk through this, it gives us a little bit of a glimpse of what our vision for ministry might have. And every every church, every person personally, every congregation working together should have a, a, a concept of a vision for what ministry is going to look like. There are some things that are always going to be held in common. Some things are going to be unique from one person or one congregation to another. I mean, for instance, if you have a congregation set in a retirement community in, in, in Florida somewhere where everybody in a 10-mile radius is 65 years and older, you know that's going to be different than a, a, a congregation in a low socioeconomic urban setting where there are children all around those They're going to have some unique aspects, but yet they're going to have some things in common as well. All of us need to have that vision of ministry, and what these people, what these disciples respond to in Jesus kind of give us a snapshot that we can work with. And so I kind of want to work through this leading up to the point where they really started to not understand. In, vi- in verse 19... They start to respond to Jesus, and they say the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, okay? A a vision for ministry starts with a clear understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. Now, you and I would read this text, and we would immediately say, well, calling Jesus a prophet falls short of the truth, And, and that would be correct. But we have to allow, reading this, that they were still processing. They, they had not come to where we can, looking back on the resurrection with all the New Testament text and 2,000 years' worth of tradition. They weren't there yet. And so for them to say that he was a prophet was really quite a bold statement, that it places him among the, the many powerful figures uh, of the Israelite people, among people like Moses and Elijah and Elisha and, and, and Jeremiah and, and many of the other prophets who, who were seen as people who were sent forth by God to speak forth on behalf of God to God's people. They were pe- people through whom God would work in a mighty way. And so when they say that he was a prophet, that's a very bold statement to say this man was of God, he was sent by God, and we understood that. And we too, in having a vision of ministry, have to have a, a very clear understanding of who Jesus is. It's very important for us and so often we we fall short of pursuing that we We live in a a time today when when the the idea of jesus and and who he was is very superficial uh, we have you find people who have kind of dis- distanced themselves from the church. Uh, in, in their mind, Christianity uh, in some way has failed them, and, and they, they like parts of Jesus, but they didn't like all of Jesus, and so they kind of cast him aside and, and fondly remember the parts about him that, that they liked. And, and you have a, a culture today that is so pluralistic uh, that many people take a cafeteria-style approach to spirituality— And in doing that, they they look at the life of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus and they say, well, I like that and I really liked, you know, when he did that and that was really nice of him and and he had these really nice words. And so we just kind of pick out the parts that we want and then we take those and we pick some things out of other religions that we like and, and whatever other philosophies and we blend our own unique kind of spirituality together. We're not afforded... The opportunity to do that. Jesus doesn't give us that privilege. If we have a vision for Christian ministry, it is founded on a clear understanding of who Jesus was in its fullness. And even those of us who who see ourselves as uh, deeply desiring to want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, who have committed our life to the ministry of the kingdom of Christ... We still have to pursue that understanding, because an understanding of Jesus, the personhood of Jesus, is a very deep thing, and and God continues to reveal him throughout the centuries to different cultures throughout the world. It's not a simple thing to understand, but... Christian ministry starts with an understanding of who Jesus was. And these two disciples traveling that day had the best concept that they could possibly have when they say that he was, a, he was a prophet, he was a man of God who was sent forth. And then they move on and they say that he was mighty in deed and word. And simply what that means for us is that because we understand the person of Jesus Christ, we also understand the impact he has on the world around And you can break it down to these two very basic things, looking at what Jesus taught and looking at what Jesus did. The teachings of Jesus and the compassionate acts of Jesus. And those two things are always in harmony. There's no dissonance between them. Some of the teachings of Jesus were very firm, and yet his compassionate acts go out and you you find that when you put those two things together, the deeds and the words of Christ embody for the world a, a kingdom where God desires to bring people in, where people can experience his presence, where people can be blessed and people can know the fullness and the richness of the love of God. That's that's the ministry that Jesus took into the world. And all of us who want to have a vision of ministry will have that same kind of thing. We understand that there's a reason the church is called the body of Christ. We are Christ for the world. It was so very well put. Centuries ago by a 16th century nun known as St. Teresa of Avila when she says that Christ has no body on earth but yours, no hands on earth but yours, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks compassionate upon the world. Yours are the feet with which he goes to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses the world. Christ has no body in the world but yours. And so we take that crystal clear understanding of the person of Jesus and then look at his life and ministry and say, this is what our ministry needs to look like. And we take Christ into the world. And in all of our unique circumstances, we're always going to hold those things in common. But then we get to the point where, if you will, the wheels start to fall off for these disciples. He was a prophet, he was mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people. And then they say in verse 20, how the chief priests and the rulers delivered him, him up to the sentence of death and crucified him. I have to feel that when they spoke these words, they felt in their gut the sense of misunderstanding this is the point where they would have said we thought we had a handle on it up until this happened so often for us we get to those points when things start to go wrong when hardship comes when unexpected circumstances come upon us when something happens out of left field and and just blindsides us when when persecution is directed toward us, when these kinds of things happen, it's very easy for us to think in our minds, something has gone wrong. Somewhere I made a mistake. Something has gone awry. God isn't working this out like I thought he was. Something has gone wrong. You know they must have sensed it. When they said, I mean, things were going so well with Jesus. Powerful things were being done. Why on earth would, I mean, if he was the man that we thought he was, why would God allow this to happen? This is exactly the struggle that John the Baptist must have had after he had been arrested and put in prison for his, he called out the king for, for an ungodly marriage. And he sent his disciples, his own disciples, to Jesus and, and asked that question, are, are you really the one? Or should we, we be waiting for someone else? Where did it go wrong? But again, this is where we have to understand that God weaves into the design of His unfolding plan the provision for persecution and hardship. Jesus predicted it. All through the Gospels He predicted it. The New Testament writers were not shy of talking about it. Even early in His ministry Jesus wove it into His teaching. If you go back to Matthew chapter 5 where we have that beautiful little passage that we call the Beatitudes. You know, blessed are are those who... And you get to verse 10, and he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, we don't like that one too much, do we? Sometimes we ask each other which are you know, what your favorite beatitude is. Mine would be the one immediately preceding that in verse 9 where Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. I mean, that sounds a lot better, doesn't it? Or, uh, you know, blessed are, are, are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's, I mean, that's great. That's heartwarming blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know what our reaction to that is. Like, did you have to throw that in? I mean, you were doing great up to that point. Why that? Jesus understood that persecution would be part of how God works his plan among his people. There are a number of examples that could be used. One that came to my mind this week, if you'll take, for instance, the organization called Samaritan's Purse. It's, it's an organization that's headed up by the Reverend Franklin Graham. I wish I could say that the uh, controversy factor for the organization and for Reverend Graham would be zero. That I know that's not true. The reason I bring it up is this. If you look at the ministry of Samaritan's Purse, You cannot deny that there are extraordinary acts of mercy done through them all over the world. And we could sit and we could list them. Christian people by the droves joining with the organization to give themselves, as we said a moment ago, as the hands and the feet of Christ, to be the hands of mercy and and compassion. And you would ask yourself, why then is there so much pushback toward the organization. It's true some of it is personal. I would contend this, that much, not all, but much of the reason people push back against the organization comes down to the fact that they are unapologetically Christian. They hold to those values unwaveringly, and do not vary from them. And you'll, people have a problem with that. That's where a lot of people get tripped up. I know it's risky when you seem to be advocating for a certain organization. It's not my intent to do that today. I'm not trying to take sides or anything. All I'm, all I'm doing is saying this. is an example of, of an organization that does so much good And yet, persecution is part of their organizational life. Our world loves a benevolent organization. We really have no problem with them. If all we want to do is dispense some goodness to people, no strings attached, uh, no, no other agendas, no... Uh, no doctrinal statements, nothing of the sort, to just, to just go out and just kind of you know, give out some food, be, be nurse and, and care for some sick people. We usually don't have a problem with that. It's the rest that gets built into it. And we find out that Jesus wouldn't let the rest go. That's the mystery and the boldness of Christ in the world. You had to take it all. I've kind of thought, and I know that there's no possibility that this would ever happen, but imagine with me for a moment how it might have turned out differently for Jesus if he would have said to the religious leaders, okay, okay, I, I, I'll just go around and and I'll heal some people now and then, okay? No, no teaching, no doctrinal stuff. Uh, I know, I'll make some blind people see, I'll cleanse some lepers, I'll, you know, some lame people, I'll make walk again, and on the rare occasion, I'll bring somebody back from the dead, and I won't do it on the Sabbath, I won't do it on the Sabbath, and I will pledge unfailing allegiance to to the authority and the teaching of the Pharisees, and if anyone seems to get out of line from that, I will quickly chastise them, I don't know. Maybe they would have crossed their arms and said, okay, just watch your step. It's not the benevolent part that trips us up. It's the fact that we want to truly be the presence, the love, and the truth of Christ in the world. And it goes with the territory. The Apostle Paul had a great way of looking at this. I would offer his words from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He has a very unique way of describing the ministry of of himself and his partners in ministry. From 2 Corinthians 4, this comes right after the very familiar verse 7 where Paul says, but we have these treasures and jars of clay so that the surpassing greatness of the power would be from God and not from us. And it's a beautiful verse. And then he goes on and he says for we are afflicted in every way but not crushed perplexed but not despairing persecuted but not forsaken struck down but not destroyed always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested In our body. I think he spoke for himself, for uh, Timothy, who was also a co greeter in that particular letter, for Silas and Barnabas, and probably by this time for John Mark. You could also put Peter and John and, and other New Testament figures in this. And Paul describes their ministry. Look, if you read through the book of Acts, I mean, everywhere he went. You know, people are trying to stone him to death. people are you know mobs of people are running him out of town. You and I wouldn't want to live like that, but he just kept plugging along because God kept using him to bring the gospel into place after place after place, and for him, he just looked at all of the persecution as if hey. All we're doing is being the very presence. It happened to Jesus. Why wouldn't it happen to us? It's all part of how God works through us. The hardships and the persecutions. They go with the territory. But the beautiful thing about it is that all of that points to Easter morning. It's not just persecution and hardships for the sake of persecution and hardships. It's persecution and hardships that lead to something better. It's that resurrection that God brings out of it. This is an Easter text. And friends, resurrection and new life only happen through death. And we're reminded that, that when stress and persecutions come upon us it does not mean that God has left us it does not mean that God's plan has somehow been sidetracked it means that there are new opportunities that God can use to work his divine plan through his people and it gives us a different perspective do you not think God takes evil and works it for good sure he does Just look at the biblical account. Do you remember the guy named Joseph, Jacob's son? We read about him in the closing chapters of the book of Genesis. You probably remember Jacob had had all these sons, and, and most of those sons despised Jacob. They despised him so much that they were going to put him to death, but chose rather to sell him to some sojourners who were on their way to Egypt. And so this band of people take him away to Egypt. They go back and tell Jacob, their father, that that Joseph's been killed by a wild animal. Joseph ends up down in Egypt. God raises him up and eventually establishes him as the second most powerful person in the whole land. Joseph, it's revealed to him that there's going to be a famine, a a seven-year famine that comes upon the land. And so with his authority, he prepares Egypt very well to be able to withstand that. The famine comes, it comes even to the land of Canaan, where Jacob and the rest of his sons are still living. And guess what happens when Jacob sends a few of his sons to Egypt to see if there's food there? That's right, they meet Joseph. And eventually when the whole family comes, to make a long story short, when they're shocked and find out who they find there, Joseph has these words. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Friends, we serve a God who can take the evil, the persecution, the hardship, all of this stuff, and use it to bring about his divine plan. That's not to say that God put it in the heart of those sons. God doesn't do that. That's the work of evil. But God redeems it for his good. As I was preparing for this week, I went back and watched a news piece that was done back in January. One of the local news stations did a little uh, video segment about the East Texas uh, church arson, arsons that happened 10 years ago. Uh, many of you at Russell Memorial will remember that quite well because this church also was one of the churches that burned. But as they did this, um, this report back in January, They pulled some of the video clips, the original video clips from the churches that that had burned, and they were interviewing some of the people at that time. One of the churches that burned was Thailand Baptist Church in Tyler. And they had a couple of people, they showed clips uh, sharing the comments. And one of those people, to the best of my uh, understanding, probably was the pastor of that church. And in the midst of his comments, he said, God has a purpose in this. And I tell you, he couldn't be more correct. Again, God did not put in the hearts of young men to set fires in churches. God does not do that. But this pastor had the spiritual awareness enough to know that God is a redeeming God, and out of the evil, God brings good. It would be very interesting to hear all of the collective stories of how God had used those heartbreaking circumstances to raise up something new and better for his people. This is the message that this text brings to us. Cleopas and his friend had a a fairly good vision for for the coming reign of God, but what they were missing was that provision, that ongoing provision that persecutions and hardship do not mean that the plan has been sidetracked. It means that God has taken this opportunity to use it and bring about His divine plan. And once again, this 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 is a message that we hold corporately as a congregation, It's a message that we can hold personally. How many of us from time to time find those times when we're just in hardship? And and the immediate thing that comes to our mind is, well, has, has God given up on me? No. Let me share these words that were written by Chuck Swindoll in a book that is now about 20 years old. The book was called The Mystery of God's Will and he shares these words. Is the Lord going to use you in a great way? Quite probably. Is he going to prepare you as you expect? Probably not. And if you're not careful, you will look at the trials, the tests, the sudden interruptions, the disappointments, the sadness, the lost jobs, the failed opportunities, the broken moments, and you will think... He's through with me, when, in fact, He is equipping you. I absolutely agree with this. And, friend, if God is equipping you, He's going to use you. If He's going to use you, He will equip you. And some of that equipping comes through the hardships that we endure. So, friend, this, this Easter message is to remind us that in our vision for doing ministry, to get it perfectly aligned must include that ongoing understanding that when we enter into those hardships, and when I say that, I'm not talking about hardships that we bring upon ourselves. We're good at doing that. That's a different sermon. I'm talking about those things that just come upon you by, by virtue of doing Christian ministry or those, those circumstances of life that, that seem to come out of nowhere. Friends, those are things that God uses to make us better able and equipped to be his people. And our best bet is to look into them and ask, what is God doing to get me ready for better impact in the world? That's the Easter message, one of resurrection and life. And friend, that's the message for you. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that you are a redeeming God, that you can use those things that were meant for evil and turn them for your good. Father, I thank you that even in the midst of the most disheartening circumstances, you do not abandon your people. And Father, I know that there are people right now in the midst of those circumstances. I pray for them. I pray that you will speak encouragement to their hearts. I pray that you will give us all a renewed hope of knowing that you work through us in an ongoing fashion. And so, Father, when we hit those hardships, lift our eyes that we may set them upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the glory before him endured the cross, despised the shame. Father, we thank you for the good work that you do. We thank you for your kingdom that is even now breaking in. May we be a part of that breaking in, a part of that kingdom as it shines forth in the world today. And may you be the one to get the glory now and always in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.
0: We're glad that you chose to spend this time with us in God's word. You can catch our worship services online at www dot r-m-u-m-c dot net. May the Lord grant you the light of his truth as you journey through this day.